So when you say eliminating the wrong people, how do people identify who the wrong people on the team are? I think there are a couple of challenges or a couple of opportunities, but also a couple of reasons why you might get to a place where you say, I'm not sure Bob or Sue are the, are the right people. Mark Efron is the author of Eight Steps to High Performance. Focus on what you can change and ignore the rest. Mark, as a founder and president of US-based Talent Strategy Group, helps the world's biggest brands and most successful companies maximize the quality and impact of their workforces. He is the author of the best-selling book, One Page Talent Management. The founder and president of the Talent Strategy Group based in New York, he leads the firm's global consulting, education, executive search, and publishing business. Identifying what issues your current team has and what might prevent them from reaching greatness and having a tough conversation with them. Yeah, I think to your point around, if you get a, a sense that this person just not the right fit, let, let's explore that conversation. So let's say you, you had that perception about me, then the sooner we have that conversation, the better. And, and that's a challenge for a lot of managers is. You know, when you say like, um, I know one of your uh, studies and, you know, your research is in building high performing teams. And I know that a lot of business owners are always looking to get their team to perform better, right? Always wanting them to achieve more, be more efficient. So what is kind of like, what is some advice you can give them? Maybe like a step-by-step -step approach on how they could really improve performance within their uh, employees. Yeah. Um, and let's start with the most difficult thing. You're not going to change people's raw material. Now, we can all grow, we can all develop, but if you have somebody on the team where you doubt their capability and you doubt their motivation, let's take care of that first, because then you can spend more time building the people who you actually want to build. Uh, mm -hmm. And that's what a lot of, even in the, the big fancy companies that I support, that's where a lot of times leaders fall down, is they don't want to make those tough decisions to say, I'm just not sure that Bob or Sue is going to be the right person going forward. And so they hang on to Bob and Sue for three years and that wastes everybody's time instead mm -hmm. of saying, here's a big check. I'm going to send you on to your next adventure. So first step is let's make sure the right people are on the team. After that, a lot of it is, are we really clear about what differentiates great? Again, sounds like an easy question, but at a lot of our clients, when we ask that question, we get this long list of, well, there are 500 things we want from a leader. It's like, I don't care about the 500. What are the four things that's going to make someone great at your company? What differentiates great where you are? What's going to allow you to beat the competition? What do you need more of? Once we get that standard, once we're really clear, okay, great looks like A, B, C, and D, the rest of it's actually really straightforward. Then it's simply, you know, how does Fong compare to A, B, C, and D? Oh, he's really good at A and B, pretty good at C, and needs to work on D. Great. Development plan. Let's make him better at C and D. One, does Fong care about that? Question number one. Because if Fong doesn't care, he's not going to get better. Um, if he does care, great. Does he understand the, the rewards, the benefits to him putting in the effort to get better at those things? If he does, cool. Then great. Then the rest of it is, is there a plan? Do we execute on it? Do we revisit it? Now, copy and paste that across the eight team members, really exact same thing. Do we all know what good looks like? Do we all know how we compare? Are we all humble and open enough to say, yeah, I can probably get better at something uh, so that we actually start to get that done? Mm -hmm. Not to oversimplify, but I think too often we overcomplicate things like how do you make your team a high performer? Get the wrong people off the team to start. Once you've got at least the right raw material, are we clear about what differentiates? Great. Let's compare you against that. And let's get a plan to close those gaps. Mm.
Hmm. So when you say eliminating the wrong people, how do people identify who the wrong people on the team are? I think there are a couple of challenges or a couple of opportunities, but also a couple of reasons why you might get to a place where you say, I'm not sure Bob or Sue are the, are the right people. Mm-hmm. We have a mantra in the, in the uh, classes that we teach. Uh, one of the things we say is companies change faster than people change. Companies change faster than people change. And when you play that out, what that means is let's say that I'm a brilliant entrepreneur and I love being an entrepreneur and I move fast and break things. And that's how I love living. And then maybe our company becomes more successful and we put in place processes and discipline and infrastructure and routines and we're in a more kind of let's call it more of an operational environment i might be the same great entrepreneur i always was but now that's not really what we need you know moving fast and breaking things actually interferes with the discipline process that we now have in place i might just not be the right fit for what you need going forward So oftentimes we don't recognize that companies change quickly and we shouldn't assume that the person who was brilliant in the past either can be or wants to be brilliant in that future environment. And that's what we find a lot of times is we hear things like, oh, Bob's been here 20 years. Like, great. We need to understand, is Bob a good fit for the future? We can honor all the great work he's done in the past, but that's different than does he have the skill sets, the capabilities? the the engagement, the willingness to do what we need him to do going forward. And too many times we just don't want to have that honest conversation. I mean, if Fong, you're my boss, we should be having that conversation every year. Mark, we're looking for people who are great at uh, digital marketing and building new relationships. Mark, you're a massive introvert. Tell me if you're comfortable doing those things. Here's the gap size. The more open that conversation is, the more we can operate like adults and either say, I know it's a stretch, but I want to try or say, that sounds like a horrible place to work. That's not how I, that's not what I signed up for. I want to work somewhere else. Mm-hmm. That's a great decision as well. So kind of long way around your, your question. First step is, well, let's recognize that companies are going to change faster than people change, which means they're going to be oftentimes when someone was great previously, they're just not great anymore. Mm-hmm. Now, after all the talking, I completely forgot the original question. What was the original question? Yeah, how do they identify, you know, who is not a good who, who fit fits. team? In Thank you. Um, and that also goes back to what we were talking about earlier. Am I clear about what differentiates great? If I can do that, then part of the question is, do I think this person can get there? If I see a big gap between what I'm clear differentiates great and where they show up, um, then it's a, a judgment call on my part, hopefully informed by facts, about mm-hmm. this person either doesn't show the capability, the experience, the drive, the interest in showing up like what I need. Mm-hmm. In that case, then, yeah, we need to have a conversation. I always say both you know, respectful and timely um, to say, you know, we don't think you're the right fit and, uh, and let's move on. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But. Clear standards solve a lot of problems. Once we're clear on what we need, then it's simply a question of, great, how well do you compare to what we need? Mm-hmm. Right. And so if someone, let's say there is a gap, right, and then they need to make some changes, whether it be their character or their skill set, it's obvious that they need to change something in order to reach greatness. And they're not willing to change, then they're probably not a good fit for the group, right? 
Yeah, absolutely. And that's, I consider that kind of a no fault decision Mm -hmm. to my earlier example. Maybe I'm a brilliant entrepreneur. You know, I wish your company all the best as you move into that more disciplined operational mindset. It just sounds boring as heck to me. I don't want to be a part of it. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I think the more we try and match people with, with roles and with companies that excite them, it's going to be a lot more successful than if we try to force fit someone into, oh, you're a brilliant entrepreneur, but just buckle down and pay attention to the processes and you'll be fine. You know, if they're not engaged by that, let's mm-hmm. not, let's not waste our time trying to force fit them. I would much rather say, I know three other brilliant entrepreneurial companies that you're going to be incredibly successful in. You know, there's no reason for you to be here and be miserable every day uh, instead of going to one of those companies where your skill set's going to shine. Mm -hmm. Right. Yeah. This reminds me a lot of when I was a sales leader, you know, and I was uh, managing a team. And one thing I learned really quickly was the importance of having foresight and also I don't know what the right word for it is, but being perceptive, you know, being empathetic, really noticing the small things that could potentially be issues and having conversations, tough conversations with them about it, you know? And so, for example, um, when I was, you know, uh, I remember when I was um, a sales leader, there was this salesperson I had. And for some reason, I forgot the exact detail, but I remember feeling in my gut that, hmm, this, this doesn't rub him the right way. You know, he's not picking up what I'm putting down. Um, and so instead of having a conversation with him about it, I just let it go. Um, maybe it was a lack of courage at that time. But then that night I had a dream that he quit, you know, because of that issue. And I'm not even kidding you, Mark. The next morning I received a text message from him saying that he quit. <laughs> Oh, that's funny. I know. So so it's like, you know, that um, it kind of went to my consciousness or subconscious, but I didn't do anything about it. So is it kind of similar to what you're describing is identifying what issues your current team has and what might prevent them from reaching greatness and having a tough conversation with them about it? Yeah, I think to your point around, if you get a a sense that this person just not the right fit. Let's mm-hmm. let's explore that conversation. So right. let's say you were you had that perception about me. Then the sooner we have that conversation, the better. And, and that's a challenge for a lot of managers is we don't want to jump on every little clue. Mm-hmm. Uh, but then you say, well, um, I won't talk to Mark about it now. Let's it, it'll be fine. It'll be fine. It'll be fine. Mm-hmm. And then you know things might snowball downhill. And you think, yeah, it, it's been three months. Things aren't in a good place. It would have been really helpful to have that conversation before. There's nothing wrong, and to your point, the, the courage and the transparency, critical. Just simply say, Mark, I noticed in that last sales meeting, you seemed really bored. Mm-hmm. And I don't know if you were just like distracted by something else or this just isn't doing it for you. But And I don't want to overreact to that one clue, but just let me know if there's anything going on that we should talk about. Mm-hmm. Kind of again, no no regret conversation, but I think a lot right. of managers don't want to overmanage. Mm-hmm. And you know, it, someone could respond to that. No, I'm good. I'm sorry. I you know, woke up late that day and I was really tired. Right. Cool. Or actually, I, I hate those meetings. Okay, let's let's talk about that. Mm-hmm. But to your to your point, that means transparency, and mm-hmm. that means that managers need to feel comfortable having those conversations and recognizing. Yeah, not every day is going to be somebody's best day and not everything they do, they might be in love with. 
okay, great. Let's let's make sure that you're at least engaged with what matters. That if there's some blocker keeping you from performing well or engaging with with the company, that um, you know, we do our best to remove that. But you're only going to know if you ask. And especially for people who are maybe performing slightly below the level you want them to, too many managers just say, "Fine, it's fine. Mm. Bob's Bob's fine." Yeah. You know, it's a tough market. If I lose Bob, it's going to be a pain to replace him. He's, he's fine. What you're saying is I'm happy sub-optimizing the performance of my business because I don't have the courage to have a conversation with Bob to see what's going on. Mm. And again, that's a human behavior. Uh, humans are hardwired to avoid conflict, not to mm. seek it. And so there's nothing, nothing natural about saying I'm going to go have a difficult conversation and enjoy it. Mm-hmm. but your job is to say, yeah, I'm going to grip my teeth. This is going to suck. Let's go talk to Bob and see what's going on. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. So let's talk about the other part. So after you identify you know, those people that don't belong or should not belong on the team, you start to work with the current team members that you have identify where they need to be at. So how do they go about that? Do they set benchmarks? Do they set sort of action plan, action items for them to get better at it? Like, how do you help coach them to get from where they're at to where you want them to be? The way we like to approach that is to think about experiences as the building blocks of your career. So Mm -hmm. almost think of like a a resume bullet. That's a, a juicy experience you had that you want to tell somebody else you accomplished that. Great. The more of those you have, the more experience, quality experiences you have, the more capable you're going to become. So if we start with experiences, you're going to be what grows you fastest. I'm going to start that conversation. If, if you're my uh, lead sales manager, Fong, and I want you to be the district sales manager, then, hey, Fong, what I think you need experience at is you're only selling one line of widgets. We need you to get exposure to three different lines of widgets. I'm going to have you uh, shadow Sally, who's on the, you know, the widget X account. Mm-hmm. Uh, so you have a better understanding of that. That's an experience you can get. Mm-hmm. Um, or actually, there's a project to, to uh, do marketing research on new widget lines we should go into. That'll get you broader experience. I'm going to have you lead that project. So thinking of experiences as the building blocks to accelerate development as opposed to classes or coaches or all the typical things we do, Mm. what I want to do is I want to have everybody in the juiciest, most developmental experience they can be in. And it might be their existing job. Might be I put you into a big job. You're going to learn a lot from that. Mm. It might be you're good in your job, but I'm going to give you some other experiences to to stretch, to grow, to test you. Mm. But I like looking at experiences as the key lever in development, and the science would suggest that's true, that experiences develop us more quickly than other things. Uh, then it's just the thoughtful process of which experiences do I think will close the gap most quickly. Mm, interesting. Okay. So for I know one of your uh, things that you researched um, in was a paper you did about 20, what was it? 20 companies, uh, 20 top companies and how they grow leaders, right? Uh, top 20 companies for leaders. That's a bit of an mm-hmm. old study, but, mm-hmm. uh, the findings from that are, are still, uh, very relevant in the, the work that I do. Um, a lot of that came down to CEOs who truly believe that better quality talent delivers better results. 
Mm. Now, you might say, well, doesn't every CEO believe that better quality talent delivers better results? Well, if you look at the talent that you see in a lot of organizations, they can't believe that or else they would have made some changes. Mm. So one differentiating factor of companies who build better leaders faster is the top woman or the top guy says, talent is our competitive advantage, and I'm going to make sure that we've got the best possible people in the most important roles. Secondly, there's clear accountability for doing that, meaning Mm -hmm. if I'm on your team, Fong, you're making sure that my team is better every single year. If I show Mm -hmm. up with the exact same team, doing the exact same things next year, that's that's a fail. That that doesn't work. So you want to understand for me, how are you growing Susie and Shruti and Rajan and what are you doing for these people to make them 10% better next year than they were this year? And if I do that well, I'm looked at as a really good manager and I'll probably have more opportunities. And if I don't do it well, well, trajectory is probably going the other direction. Mm. And then finally, kind of the stuff closest to my heart or closest to the work that we do every day, the practices that those top 20 companies used and, and top 20 meant that they grew faster and more successfully than the all dinner companies we compared them to. They had really simple talent practices. They didn't have the fanciest technology. They didn't have the fanciest design. You know, in terms of assessing people, very simple uh, practices. Their model for determining if you had high potential or not, simple. For setting goals, simple. For reviewing you, simple. They were much more concerned with what are we trying to get from this process? Let's take performance management. All we're trying to get from that process is, do you know the few most important things to work on? Are you getting some insights during the year about how you're doing? And do we fairly evaluate you at the end of the year? That's all we're trying to do in performance management. Hmm. And those top 20 companies would say, great, what's the easiest possible way we can do that? As opposed to what's the coolest technology I can buy with the most features that I can turn on? Like, that's not the question. The question mm-hmm. is, do you know what's most important? Are you getting regular feedback? And, and did we give you a fair review at the end of the year? And thinking through what's the least amount of effort and energy we'd have to put into getting that done. Mm. Wow. So um, the 20 companies that you uh, research, what were some of those companies are like, you know, like... Um, name drop a few of those companies. Yeah, and this was a kind of an older study. So um, I would probably actually need to go back and look at some of them that were great at the time, but have faded. So mm-hmm. you can look at companies like GE, who at the time were top of the mark. This was back in 2005, probably, um, who have now faded. Others who have morphed like an IBM. Mm-hmm. But the practices that they use, so kind of independent of kind of the trajectory that some of them have taken, some have gone up, some have gone level, some, a few have gone down. Uh, the learning from the study was really, they had differentiated themselves at their performance at the time by having very committed CEOs, by having uh, very clear accountability for talent building and for having managers who are great talent builders and having those radically simple practices to grow people and assess people and ensure that, that people were fairly rewarded. Mm. So I'd be curious to you know, maybe like a follow-up uh, study, why the ones that have faded, maybe what has changed in their practice, you know, of being able to grow talent. I actually did uh, I did on the 10th anniversary of the latest study. So it's by mm-hmm. 2015. I actually did a follow-up mm. um, and basically looked at performance because, you mm-hmm. know, all 
I'll call bullshit on my own studies as fast as I'll call it on somebody else's. Mm -hmm. And so I wanted to see, okay, if they were so great, was there any trajectory? Because if they're only great for five years, that's that probably doesn't tell us much. And mm -hmm. I'll need to look this up and get back to you on it. But I think like 15 did better than the market, three or probably three were even with the market and two nosedived. Mm -hmm. But overall, it was pretty good. Um, when you look at total mm. shareholder return for those companies over time, and I think like some were bought, some combined, but the trajectory was pretty decent um, mm. over time. But I do like actually going back and seeing because longevity is tough. We all know that every study that's been done of successful companies tends to go belly up after a few years. And then the authors are embarrassed because they said, oh, these are the best companies in the world. And it's like, well, they're bankrupt now. Right. So what happened? <laughs> Sometimes it's obvious factors. Sometimes, you know, a new CEO comes in, right. everything can change. Mm -hmm. And so uh, you have to count on the longevity of the practices. If the same practices are in place, then great. Is the company doing better or worse than it was? But if they've swept aside everything that you wrote about and they have a whole new regime and then it's difficult to compare one to the other. Mm -hmm. So I do want to put an asterisk next to... Um, a new what you said a new ceo coming in and everything changing because i think that ties into ceo succession planning but um a follow-up to one of the things you said helping your team get better and you mentioned 10 percent. so what is an ideal number because you know like i know that there's some entrepreneurs out there that like to shoot for the moon or even mars like elon musk right and he expects for his team to work an ungodly amount of time in his companies, you know, some people sleeping in the factory, some people, you know, so that's a high bar for him, but maybe another leader might do the 10%. So how do you identify what the optimum level to get your team to improve is by? Sure. Um, let me back into that. I like asking leaders or like telling leaders probably more explicitly, um, you should know the capabilities of your team and what ma I call it maximum reasonable stretches. Mm -hmm. So maybe it's not Elon Musk stretch, but it's more stretch than most leaders put in. It basically says, if I'm working for you, Fong, you should know my capabilities, my interest, my engagement, motivation, my commitment, and be able to say, Mark, I think you're capable of X plus one. You're at X but I'm pretty sure you got X plus one in you. Here's what it's going to take. Now, mm -hmm. maybe that's 10% more than I'm delivering now. Maybe it's 50% more than I'm delivering now. But a lot of it goes to, we all have more stretch in us. And the psychology motivation is very clear that we tend as individuals to respond to more challenge with more effort. Most of us, it's not that we aren't busy, but many of us aren't as challenged as we should be. And so, yeah, we do our job fine, you know, turn it in, fine, here you go. But that doesn't mean we're motivated to do more. And so mm -hmm. you as my manager, part of your job is to say, what's going to get this guy psyched about showing up every day and contributing more and contributing at a higher level? Now, that doesn't mean simply adding more hours. That's the cheater's way of getting more. So, mm -hmm. yeah, if you're sleeping at the factory, I expect you get twice as much done as if you're not sleeping at the factory. But that's just right. math. You know, mm -hmm. there, there's no benefit there. Um, to me, the magic is saying, what does more productivity look like? If you're, if you can give me 10 hours, great. I want the best 10 hours I can get from you. Uh, mm -hmm. So how are we going to make that happen? To me, that's the magic. And then so back into the question, 
I ask it a few different ways, depending on the audience I'm talking to. Uh, oftentimes the question is, well, how do I, I'll talk about raising the bar. Well, how do I raise the bar? Right. What would 10% better look like for Fong next year? Hmm. Whatever he does. I mean, if you're a project manager, a programmer, a marketer, what would 10% better look like? Let's just talk about that. Because that feels like it's a, it's kind of a false quantification, but I could say, okay, he would reach out to 10% more clients. Okay, great. How, mm. what, what's that number? Oh, it's another 50. Great. So let's do that. Um, he would um, network 10% better. Oh, what does that feel like? Oh, he's, I don't know. He's probably going to have 10 stronger relationships at the end of the year. I mean, you can either quantify it or at least get to a reasonable understanding of what that looks like. Mm-hmm. 10% is a number that feels like a low bar to me. I would certainly expect we could all get 10% better um, if we focus, but that puts some pressure on the manager to say, you think through what that individual is capable of and you help them understand what that looks like. I also flip that sometimes and I say, what would it take for Fong to deliver twice in 2024 what he's going to deliver in 2023? And only people say, that's a really dumb question. Well, what would it take? What what behaviors would he have to change? Uh, what work money have to delegate? Uh, any team members that he would need to adjust? Um, any skills he need to gain? If he had to deliver two hundred percent without sleeping at the factory, um, what would have to happen? Because it's amazing how that frees the mind up around. Oh, well, I can't do it because I got Bob on the team. Oh, Bob would have to go, wouldn't he? Oh, yeah, Bob would have to go. And and so it kind of opens up that world of possibilities to. Well, I guess I probably would need to be, you know, probably more of a motivational manager. So it doesn't mean you have to do all those things, but mm-hmm. it can it can really clarify your mind around. Yeah, I guess even one hundred twenty five percent more would be possible if I wanted to engage in all those things we just identified are actually possible. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I really like that approach. You know, being able to identify what it means for each person because not everybody's going to be the same, and it's important to not have a cookie cutter approach, you know, tailor what is possible for each person or what you think they're capable of. Yeah. And not to have a facile response where, Oh, let's raise the bar. Right. Okay. No, let's, let's be a little more specific. What does 10% better look like? Everybody's, you know, everybody's going to be 10% better. You need to figure out what 10% better looks like if you're a team, Mm -hmm. but we're not just going to say raise the bar. That's a, I hear that in a lot of companies. It's a silly, meaningless slogan. Right. Exactly. So let's talk about the other part that um, I want us to get back to, which is, you know, you mentioned some companies bringing in a completely different CEO and they change everything and then they, their company takes a nosedive. So how do you find the right CEO? Let's say there's an entrepreneur out there and they're like, you know what, it's time to find a CEO. I want a person that can replace me. So how should they go about finding the right one? I think a lot of it depends on, are they clear about the direction of the company? And let's go back to that entrepreneur versus operator mm-hmm. model. Uh, there's a, a great but very old Harvard Business Review article called Entrepreneurs Don't Scale. Uh, mm-hmm. The title kind of gives away the rest of the article, but it's clear that people who tend to operate in that environment are really good in that environment and either unengaged by or not capable of operating in more of an operational environment. Step one is to simply say, do we know where we're going? If we're staying in that entrepreneurial mode, then great. Let's define here are the four things that are going to differentiate a great entrepreneurial CEO. But if we're moving to operational, exact same exercise, then it's probably going to feel and look very different. 
So step one, and back to our earlier conversation on standards, am I crystal clear about the few things that are going to differentiate success in this role? That applies to CEO just like it applies to anybody else. And then the second most important question is, can they bridge us from where we are today to where we need to go? Because moving from entrepreneurial to operational, that's that can be a gut-wrenching move. Uh, and you hear a lot of things like, um, I used to know everybody around here and I don't anymore and that's not any good. And I used to be able to work on whatever I wanted to. And now I have to work on the stuff you want me to work on. It's just the, the natural evolution from an entrepreneurial to a more disciplined firm. Can that leader and that operational mindset respect the past, but still people pull, pull people through to the, the future and mm-hmm. recognize that a lot of people who are the right fit for the past might not be the right fit for the future and to make those decisions quickly. But a lot of it is the ability to balance, look, you all got us here. Fantastic. Uh, we've got a new hill to conquer. You need to decide if you want to sign up for that or not. So to show respect for what's been achieved and the people who achieved it and how it was achieved, but also be clear about, uh, you know, th- those boats are going to be burned. Uh, we're not mm-hmm. we're not going to be sailing back. So, you know, do you want to go to this new place we're going to? It's a really cool place. I'll describe it for you. Uh, but if you don't want to go there, then then that's fine. I'll give you a big check. We'll have a big party. We'll send you on your way. Mm, I see. So being able to balance, yeah, the the um, past and also the future and getting someone right for the role. Um, anything else, you know, and let's say maybe they already have a CEO and, you know, maybe they're looking to replace that CEO. Uh, how does that look like? I think it, again, goes to, are you changing scenarios or is it the same scenario? In mm-hmm. either case, I want to understand if you're getting rid of CEO number one, kind of either what didn't work there, what didn't you like, what's not happening, uh, and understand, is that a systemic problem? Now, the, there's something about the organization that just makes doing that tough, or is it an individual problem that CEO simply wasn't good at getting people to do that particular thing? Uh, but being really clear, we need more of this and less of this from a new CEO. Um, again, as simple as that sounds, when I see a lot of CEO um, job specs that I get from executive search firms, they're a list of like 38 different things. Mm-hmm. Like, what are the four things you want this person to do? Mm-hmm. I know there's a hundred, but what are the four things that truly matter that are going to drive shareholder value, customer sat, all the all the things we care about? Getting just absolutely crystal clear on that is still the the absolute first step. Mm-hmm. Now, are there some qualities that kind of are similar across the board. You, I know you mentioned four, but are there some that just most companies are looking for that item? Um, I think they're pretty generic, to be honest, Fong. I think mm-hmm. it's the, you know, especially the CEO, you're strategic, mm-hmm. you've got a clear vision, you're a good communicator, you build a team effectively. I mean, again, all good things, but you know, do they truly differentiate what you need in your company? It's almost table stakes mm-hmm. for CEO um, if you're good at those things. But also, I think one of the oper- or one of the interesting things around CEO selection is part of it depends on how much you care about honoring the past versus driving to a new future. Because mm-hmm. let's go back to that that entrepreneur versus operator. The board might say, we don't give a crap about the past. We're hemorrhaging money. We need to get to operational efficiency now. 
Okay, then bring in an SOB CEO who says, mm -hmm. guess what? Starting today, this is how we work. I hope you like it. If you don't, we've got to check. There's the door. Right. That's an okay. Might not be a pleasant way to manage, but that's an okay way to manage if the urgency is at a level where you don't have time to be nice to people. Um, right. You need to make some really swift, painful, sometimes mean decisions because you know the the body is dying and we need to get surgery done now. Hmm. Right. Yeah. So sometimes you see that you you mm -hmm. see that in companies and people are like, oh, well, that that you know he's a real sob. It's like either he could be an sob or everybody in that company could lose their jobs tomorrow. Mm -hmm. So which you want to tolerate this jerk because he can actually recover the company or do you want to say, well, now I'm going to be a nice CEO and we're all going to go on unemployment. Mm -hmm. Yeah. The scenario you just described reminds me of a very recent one with Twitter <laughs> <laughs> where um, Elon Musk went in and gutted, you know, what, what was it? 70% like the yeah, majority so. of the company because, and, you know, I think rightfully so the company was going to go bankrupt. You know, he said they were losing so much money um, so quickly. And so if he didn't have to make, if he didn't make drastic actions, then it would have been out of business and everybody would be out of job. Right. Yeah. And I think mm -hmm. if we, I think everybody has an opinion on, on Musk. So I think if we can remove our political preferences <laughs> right. um, and simply look at, did the moves he make, strengthen or weaken the organization, at least according to what he would say. And I don't think we've seen any, well, I we won't see any reports since they're now private. Uh, but what he's saying is we're either profitable or almost profitable mm -hmm. with three quarters less people. Okay. Um, do the people who were fired like him? Nope. Mm -hmm. um, does he have a great reputation among a lot of people? Nope. Um, is the business stable? Well, at least according to him, yup. So you can argue the Machiavellian nature of what he did. But, um, and none of us had insight into the, the finances of the company, but let's assume they were as bad as, as uh, he stated, it was probably the right thing to do. Mm -hmm. And uh, the fact that whatever number, the remaining 30% stayed on and are still working also says that some people are probably absolutely fine with that vision. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, given that, I mean, I know tech's challenged right now, but you could still find a new job if you wanted to. 30% right. um, of people have stuck around and said, no, I'll give this guy a shot. Let's see what happens. Mm -hmm. Exactly. So um, who are some maybe other, you know, you're in this space and I'm sure you see really talented business people. You know, who are some, maybe some really top names, you know, out there that you're like, wow, they're doing a great job. I really like their style. You know, the way that they're leading companies is something that a lot of other entrepreneurs and business owners should aspire to, to be like. So any, anybody that comes to mind, share some roses here. Yeah, <laughs> and um, I won't offer too many names only because we work with a lot of the best companies and I try mm. not to... Um, not to artificially promote them or disclose <laughs> things that I shouldn't be disclosing accidentally right. because I don't know what's public and what's not public. Um, mm -hmm. I would go to some of the really well-known well characters out there and let's start with a Tim Cook. Um, mm. He has done an amazing job operationalizing Apple. I mean, mm -hmm. the fact that they can produce that much product uh, distributed in the way they have, stay, I'll call it moderately current, certainly not the bleeding edge of innovation. Uh, but at least moderately current on products, um, 
and and maintain that over time is remarkable. So while I would love it if Apple could be a little more innovative and give me something you know beyond <laughs> ten year old you know uh, products. Um, I do love the fact that the disciplined execution of moderate innovation over time um, has been fantastic. And I think that goes to, you have a, um, I don't know if ego-free, but ego-low individual um, who is focused on getting the job done with a minimum amount of drama and a minimum amount of calling attention to himself. Um, That is an amazingly powerful quality in a CEO who says, yeah, he's probably very proud of of who he is and what he does, but that's not going to be what he leads with. He doesn't care if he's on, you know, front page of the journal. Um, He cares about what's next quarter's results and how do we get there uh, in a drama-free way. Um, I think you see some other leaders, and I'm not going to go to the the bad ones, but who are more concerned with their image um, in the media and oftentimes make company decisions based on their image. And then you start to see the the company kind of whipsaw back and forth because they're managing according to the media's whims as opposed to what's a disciplined execution um, style in your organization. Mm-hmm. Uh, a lot of my clients do a lot of work in the pharma industry. I see a, a lot of my pharma CEOs uh, who really understand talent well, it's kind of back to the core of our discussion, who really get that high quality talent is going to differentiate how fast you can come up with these wonderful drugs that are helping people to live longer lives and and less painful lives. And so they're really investing in selecting the best, you know, huge amounts invested in development and just a very almost learning culture oriented uh, company. I see a lot of my pharma uh, CEOs doing that well, and you're seeing great results, those organizations. Um, even, you know, we do a lot of work with big food companies as well. You might not think of big food companies as places where you'd see great management, but um, I see a lot of just good disciplined execution of what I'll call the talent basics, where they're very clear about what differentiates great. Um, they are act, those CEOs are actively involved in growing high potentials. They're, they're coaching, they're mentoring. Um, they hold their leaders accountable for growing great quality teams. So kind of the the talent evangelist in them is very powerful and they make sure that people in the company know um, how important that is. So I hesitate to call out a lot of individuals, but I do see across my client uh, base, CEOs who are very good at building and sustaining their companies because they're having a, uh, a very exquisite focus on talent and the quality of talent in the organization. Mm. Wow. So with talent, you know, like I'm just thinking in interviews, and I'm sure that, you know, m- many people might be thinking this way is they you go into an interview and then people are going to be putting on a performance, right? They're going to be putting on the best version of themselves. They're going to kind of inflate their um, accomplishments and achievements. And so how can leaders sniff through that and be able to identify top talent? more data uh, because you're absolutely right Fong if you cannot bullshit your way through a couple of interviews you probably shouldn't be hired anyways Uh, but the problem is most of us are pretty good at bullshitting our way through a few interviews and not showing our weak sides and having practiced all the questions Um, I'm a big fan of assessments Um, basically two two assessments or two types of assessments that will give you great data one is cognitive 
not necessarily raw intellectual horsepower, but how do you apply uh, your cognitive power? And then mm -hmm. personality, especially there's a, um, an area called derailers. Um, derailers are basically parts of your personality that are turned up a little bit too high that are likely going to cause you to fail in your career. Mm. You can assess people for both of those things. And so the first one answers, hey, is this person smart enough to get the job done in terms of how they apply their intelligence? Probably two questions. One, just smart enough, but also can they apply that intelligence in a way that's helpful? That's always helpful to know. Um, but the from a personality standpoint, understanding a couple of things. First, those derailers. We all have them. So we all have areas that you know, show up when we're under stress. We aren't kind of controlling our behaviors well. That causes people to say, oh, I'm not sure I want to promote that person. Or I don't really like working with them. You can identify a lot of that through a decent assessment. And it doesn't mean you don't hire someone because of it, but you might say, hey, Mark, um, we were looking at your derailer report. It shows you're actually really high on, uh, there's a derailer called skeptical. Now, a little bit of skeptical mm -hmm. is good. It means you don't believe everything everybody tells you, but turn that dial up to 11. And then it's, you're picking on everybody's data in the meeting. And, oh, uh, I don't know where Fong got that report from. I don't like that report at all. They're not a consultancy. And, okay, now that dial's turned up too high, and you're just kind of a jerk in meetings. You might still think of it as I'm really sharp eyed around bad data, but people mm -hmm. don't want to work with you. They don't want to be led with you or led by you. They don't want to be on a team with you. You can find that out through an assessment. And you can basically then have that interview question. Hey, Mark, it looks like you're really high skeptical. Tell me, I wonder, are you aware of that? If so, do you recognize it and control for it? Because once you know you have a derailer, then you can start to say, oh, okay, I'm going to manage this interaction in this way so that derailer doesn't show up. So probably a little hummingbird next to me on my deck here. Um, uh, so one way is, is derailers. The other is you can assess people's... Um, motivators and values and see to what extent that aligns with your company culture. So mm -hmm. for example, let's say that uh, the, the culture at your company is about kind of humility and no big egos and recognition is kind of quiet, not really differentiated. Mm -hmm. And you do an assessment on me and I'm all about, I want to be recognized. I want huge differentiation in my rewards. I want a big office. And it's worth having a conversation. Hey, Mark, we manage in this way. You indicated your preferences are more like this. Let's, let's have that mm -hmm. conversation. So mm -hmm. a long way around your question, there's a lot that we can gain in that interview process by having assessments that will give us very predictive data that mm -hmm. can overcome some of the, the very typical interview biases. Right. So let's talk about these two assessments. So the first one you mentioned is cognitive. So is this something that the company kind of tailors to whatever their industry is, industry knowledge, or is it something? No, it, it is. Um, so this is simply a, a measure. I'll use an IQ test as an example, but then I'll mm. kind of modify. So just let's start with classic IQ test. You know, on that right. scale, 100 is average, mm. and, and that's by age. Um, so above or below. So are they at the mm. you know first standard deviation, second standard deviation? Now, twist that a bit and say, okay, well, they're smart, but how can they apply it? So it's going to apply to anybody in any industry. You're simply saying, do they have the cognitive horsepower to get the job done? Uh, good news is for most people, if you graduated from college, you have enough cognitive horsepower to get most jobs done. Mm. Um, what the science would say is the only place where it matters a lot more, where there's kind of a linear relationship is 
um, in really um, uh, scientific jobs, deep technical jobs. So mm. where you need really deep specific expertise, actually the, the relationship is a bit more linear, mm. meaning you know if you're one unit smarter, then you'll probably have one more unit of, of high performance. Mm. But average manager IQ, I think the studies are like, 115. So you're like a half mm. a standard deviation above average. You don't need to be brilliant to be a manager. Um, but it just helps us to understand, are you uh, are you capable of getting the job done? That's standard around the globe. So we all have intelligence shows up the same way, whether I'm sitting in, in North America, Latin America, APAC, uh, Europe, wherever. So kind of a very standardized measurement. And the same thing with personality, because all of us have the same personality structure. Um, and the, the short way or the easy way of looking at it is there are kind of five parts of our personality and different tests simply slice those into different categories, but uh, you measure everybody in the same way. And then you figure out, given Fong's personality, how does that apply to what we need from him? Because mm -hmm. your personality is not going to change, but it might be a perfect fit with some roles and not a great fit with other roles. Right. So the personality test, are you referring to the big five personality test? It could be big five tests, you know, generally, and there's a few different ways of slicing personality. There's kind of a hexaco and a few other things, but um, they're all, they're all not all, but all the big ones are valid um, to, to use. And they all essentially measure the same things. They just slice them in slightly different ways. Right. So DISC would be another one that falls within that category. Um, I would separate is? DISC out. Um, mm in terms of, of its purpose, this can be an interesting assessment of kind of work styles and preferred styles. Mm. Um, but the, the classic big five assessments are going to give you a more valid and repeatable mm. test. Meaning, valid meaning it's going to actually uh, measure your personality the right way. Repeatable means it's not going to change every single time you take it. Mm -hmm. I see. And what are your thoughts on Myers-Briggs? Um, I would strongly avoid using it. Uh, it's <laughs> not it's not valid. It's not reliable. Um, even given that it's probably the most common test that everybody has taken. I've taken yeah. it. You've probably taken it. Everyone we both know has probably taken it. Right. We could all list our four letters. Um, if anybody just Googles um, problems with Myers-Briggs, they will have more than enough reading material <laughs> uh, to occupy their, their afternoon or evening. Um, it's... I. I put in the category of it doesn't do any harm. Your life's not going to be worse because you've taken the Myers-Briggs. Right. But if you're interested in personality, there are so many better options uh, to go for be it besides that. Right. So um, what are some of the best ones that you've seen? I know you mentioned the, you know, anything that has the big five, any specific ones that you have? Uh, I'm big fans of Hogan assessments. H-O-G-A-N. Okay. Uh, Dr. Robert Hogan is one of the leading personality scientists. He essentially helped to create the, the entire field. And his firm does a, a brilliant job. They've, they have affiliates around the world. And what I love about his or his company's assessments is that the reports are in plain English or mm -hmm. plain Spanish or plain whatever the language they're, they're written in. I, if Let's say you're my client. I could drop the report in front of you as an executive. You could flip through it and understand exactly what it said and exactly mm. what you might want to do more of or less of because of the findings. Mm. So it's really easy to interpret. You don't need someone to sit with you and read through it. I mean, it's always beneficial, but you know, it's not required. As opposed to some of the other tests, which are kind of wonky and you need a 
industrial organizational psychologist to sit with you and explain what this means and you know what does a 4.3 out of 5 mean and what should you do because of that. Um, Hogan just makes it really easy to understand, okay, what did this, what does it say? What does it mean? How might I change myself to um, to be more effective given these findings? Mm, that's awesome. Okay. Hogan assessments. I, I uh, definitely got to check that one out. I'm always, I always had a fascination with personality types and understanding that. And so that's, that's news to me, Hogan assessment. So I would check that out. Yeah, Hogan's great. And again, there's lots, there's lots of great test providers mm -hmm. um, out there. They're simply my favorite mm -hmm. uh, for the, the ease of use uh, of both the assessments and the reports. Right. Okay. So I know that um, I think on your website, you, were work, uh, you work with nonprofits as well. And so yes. have you found, I mean, have you found a difference in working with nonprofits uh, you know, compared to for-profit companies? And maybe like, let's say you're managing a team of volunteers, you know, people are not paid to be there. Would you manage them a little differently? So talk to me a little bit about that. Yeah, um, a lot of it is simply what's, what motivational levers are missing in a not-for-profit? Uh, or even in some, we work with some of the biggest NGOs around the world as well, kind of what's missing that we would normally have as a lever to, to change behaviors. And a lot of the times it's simply rewards. So mm. if you're not, if they're volunteers, or even if you're working at a, a big foundation, they might not pay bonuses. You might get a very nice salary, uh, but that motivational difference of your bonus will go up or down doesn't exist anymore. And so that can remove both an incentive and a recognition for fairness of performance at the end of the year. So now we need to figure out, well, given that I don't have that motivator, what do I replace that with to make sure that people are still as engaged by the job? It might be connection to the mission, especially for some of those NGOs or charities. So connect with the mission that might motivate you. It might be that I design your job in a way that is really engaging and motivating and causes you to, to apply a lot of, of effort to it. Uh, but what it, it typically means is, yeah, there are a few things that are missing that, um, that are challenging. Plus maybe the external factor of, um, if I'm working at, uh, at IBM, I care what our competitors are doing because if they're successful and we're not, I'm out of a job. Most mm -hmm. charities, that's not really the case. I, I kind of doubt that people at the American Cancer Society are really concerned about what Red Cross is doing right now. Uh, they're probably both doing a great job, but you know neither is worried about going out of business because of the other one. So kind of that external motivation of, oh, we'd better work hard here or else uh, those people might buy us or take us over or take our customers, that's missing. And so you really need to think through, how do I replace that? What's going to allow uh, those people to be just as motivated as, uh, as in a for-profit organization? Mm -hmm. So you mentioned like motivation to the mission. So what would that look like, you know, like um, as far as adding that component to their job, you know, do you dig, how do they get more of that? You know what I mean? <laughs> yeah, I think a lot of it would be exposure to whoever your client base is. So uh, mm -hmm. I have no association with the American Cancer Society. I think that's the right Um mm -hmm. But let's say that, that you have someone who's a, a marketer there, mm -hmm. and they're probably a really good marketer, but they join from a for-profit organization. They don't really maybe understand uh, what the organization does yet. Great. Let's go out and visit a few uh, cancer treatment centers. Mm -hmm. 
Mm-hmm. And so you can meet with people who are being treated and have them express to you what they want the American Cancer Society to do for them and mm-hmm. really kind of get them close to, okay, this is who we're helping. Yeah, this is the benefit that will be created if I market and bring more money into this organization to fund more great cancer research. So mm-hmm. I think you can expand that to whether you're, you know, ASPCA and working with animals. Great. Go out to animal shelters and, and kind of reinforce, okay, that poor kitten sitting in that cage, we want that kitten to get a home. Um, mm-hmm. To the extent that we're better at this mission, more of those kittens will get more homes. I think kind of bringing people closer to the face, to the customer of that mission is probably the best way to motivate that, uh, that additional effort. I see. Yeah. I think that's great. You know, they'll be able to see firsthand and they'll probably pull on their heartstrings, you know, while they're there seeing the cancer patients, um, or, you know, whatever, uh, customer or whatever population they're serving and the impact that they can have from their work. So I, I love that idea. So um, here's a more selfish question for myself. So, you know, my vision for my companies that I'll start, uh, that I'll start in the future, but also the one I have now is building something where I could, the business will last beyond me, you know, that, and my goal is for the business to last forever. Now I know it's a very mm-hmm. idealistic goal, but I'm definitely going to shoot for it. So, you know, I don't plan on selling. I fo- I'm focused on building leaders and building a foundation that could live beyond me. So super long-term focus, uh, studying from, you know, Japanese companies, because I know many of them have uh, t- uh, lived through the test of time, you know, a couple hundred years. Mm-hmm. So if you were me, what would you do as far as talent, you know, as far as finding the right people, maybe uh, managing the people to be long-term focused where they wouldn't want to work anywhere else besides my company? Um, I'm just going to write down my notepad here, three things, so I can remember them all at the same time. So I think there's probably a few things you want to do. Um, if you And I work with a, a Japanese pharmaceutical company. They've been around for 250 years, I think. And so that I'm kind of projecting forward from what some of the things they've done well. Part of it is extraordinarily strong value set. Kind of mm-hmm. why do we exist? Um, and to what we we're just talking about, maybe that's a mission, maybe it's simply you know the values we're here to do X, but have that be just exceptionally clear so mm-hmm. that I can decide if I want to sign up for that or not, and to have that be really unwavering. Because if you're changing the values every ten years, then you know you probably don't have a, a very stable company. But very clear values and a very clear vision for how you're going to deliver on those values. You know, we believe in doing A, B, and C. We're going to get there by D, E, and F. Hmm. So clarity around who we are, who we want to be, and how we're going to achieve that. Um, And then that should create a culture that attracts people and keeps people who want to do exactly that. Hmm. And so if you could be, not to oversimplify, but it really is those few powerful levers, we're clear about who we are, we're clear about what we do, we want to be the, the best in the world at it, that should attract the right people. Mm-hmm. But that also means you need to be disciplined in ensuring that you communicate that, that those values and visions out to enough people that you get the right people. But also, you're very selective. Um, and you only allow people in who are going to sign up for that vision and values and who are just as or even more passionate about them than you are. Mm-hmm. Right. Yeah, that's, that's great advice, Mark. I really appreciate that. You know, it, you know, my mission 
uh, I have it down as unwavering is to positively impact humanity forever. And so I see my companies as a way to really take the profits um, and use them and also the services to use them to help grow nonprofit organizations so that way they can serve the people that you know uh, they serve. And through that, we'll be able to impact humanity. You know, so that's kind of like my vision for fantastic. And then also for it to continue to do that even when I'm gone, you know, forever. And so that's my uh, vision. I love it. That sounds great. Like yeah. Good things are going to happen because of that. Thank you, Mark. So just to wrap up, you know, people that are listening are entrepreneurs, people are listening are business owners. And so I know that you've done a lot of research. If you had to package your research to the most important things that will have a positive impact in their business, but also society as a whole, what advice would you give leaders? Yeah, I would, I would always start here. This is not going to be very sexy advice, but I can guarantee you it's effective. One, are people clear about the few big deliverables they have for this year? Let's just start there. It sounds simple. Most of the time, they're not. Secondly, are you being transparent with people about their performance, and their behaviors in the organization, and what they can do to make each of those better? Again, sounds easy. Most companies, they're not. And are you holding people accountable, people managers accountable, for building the quality and the depth of their team? Quality meaning uh, they're the right uh, right skill sets, the right mindsets, depth meaning there's enough people that succession is there. Start with those three things. Once you get those three things down, so many other things take care of themselves. But if you don't know what you're supposed to be working on, you're not getting transparent feedback and you're not building the quality and depth of your team, everything else you try to do is going to be very, very challenging. Awesome. Well said. Thank you so much, Mark, for being on. I mean, I can't believe it's been an hour this time. Time flies when you're having fun. Um, but where can people find you? Um, they can visit our website at talentstrategygroup.com. Uh, lots of great free articles, videos, research, all of our work on, uh, on how to make talent a competitive advantage is there. Awesome. Great. Thank you so much, Mark. Thank you, everybody, for watching or listening. I'll see you in the next episode. Bye now. Thanks, Fong.